0: have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12, the Scream of Things. This is one, should be one of the easier books to find from where we ask you to turn to. Let's look in the front. Uh, if you want to look in the index, it'll say turn the page, but uh, it's uh, in the front, Genesis chapter 12 uh, this morning. Uh, next week we'll begin a series in the book of Romans. Uh, It's something I've wanted to do for a long time but never have done, and we began talking about doing this last fall. We solidified our commitment to doing it in uh, January, and we've been looking forward to that. Uh, We're not there yet, uh, so this week we look at Genesis 12. That's not just to fill in the gap, uh, but I think not only is there a practical benefit from the passage that we're going to look at, I I believe that the events that are introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12 serve as a a wonderful prequel to understanding uh, the the book of Romans. and So we have the benefit of not only what God will speak to us today, uh, but a reference to come back to as we are in the next uh, foreseeable future, next uh, period uh, in the book of Romans as well. Uh, But this morning we'll be looking at Romans chapter 12. Our focus will be verses one through three, but for the sake of context, we'll be reading through verse nine. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched a tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev the word of our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy God, we do come with thanksgiving for this, your word, and pray that you would bless us with understanding. You would work within us, uh, that we would not only have understanding, but that you would renew us in, in the grace that is promised here, uh, that you would bless us as you have promised Abram and his heirs, and that you would make us a blessing as well. But Lord, we do pray that we would come with ears to hear, hearts to receive, you might do the work that you have promised, that your work would bear fruit in our lives, in our church, that we would see in our community and in this world. We pray this all to you, for you must be at work, otherwise our labors and our striving would all be in vain. Lord, we come with the hope, trusting in your promise, that your word will be at work. We pray in the name of Christ, who is the word incarnate, amen. Have you ever stumbled upon a sign and made you wonder why is that sign here? I did earlier this week I was leaving the uh, parking garage at the hospital at at VCU and as I was making my way down from the upper levels down to the street levels where you can get out uh, I was behind a number of cars which pretty much always I am when I'm in that parking garage. And so at one point I was stopped and I noticed a sign off to my left, although the road veers to the right, the sign says, Express Exit. Being at a standstill, I had time to look around to see, what. Why, why, one, wonder why no one was taking the express exit. Two, I wondered why there didn't seem to be any exit or any ramp and why it only uh, just was just a rail. And three, I wonder why they would put a sign for an express a- exit when we were still two uh, stories uh, above the ground level. And I don't know the answer to that. I'm still kind of wondering. I'll explore further next time I go. Having asked the question if you'd ever seen a sign, uh, a lady in the first, after the first service came up to me and said, she was someplace recently where the sign said, seeing eye dogs only. And she wondered, who was that for? Um, um, Which was a good question. I don't have that. So we've all encountered different signs at some place or another that make us kind of wonder, why is that there? Sometimes we wonder what they mean. Sometimes we know what they mean. We just wonder why they're there. Well, in a sense, Genesis 12 presents to us a a sign. It's not a directional sign. It's not an instructional sign. But it's a sign that is pointing to the future. In verse 3, there is an incredibly important statement that is really uh, quite amazing, because in this, uh, Moses, inspired by the Lord, says records the, the conversation that the Lord had with Abram and said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, as we look back, we recognize that this is God's plan of redemption. But it's, it's quite a, an amazing statement uh, to be made. It, it's uh, the kind of statement pointing to the future that should, if we're studying this and we're thinking about it, Make a stop and wonder hmm, why is why is that there? What does this all entail? What's involved in this declaration and in this promise? Theologian John Stott says of this passage, particularly the first three verses, these are perhaps the most unifying verses in the Bible. The whole of God's purpose is encapsulated here in in these three verses. He's saying the whole of God's purpose is encapsulated. And when something is of that significance, it should grab our attention and explore. And maybe we have some idea of why it's here, but digging in to seeing all of what is revealed here, even in just these few words. Now, in Genesis 12 is where we meet the man named Abraham. Here he's named Abram. His name will be changed a a few chapters later as he walks with God. But Abraham is arguably, with the exception of Jesus Christ, the most important person found in the Bible. No doubt a case could be made for Moses, another case could be made for David. Both of those are first ballot Hall of Famers and the faith Hall of Fame you would find in Hebrews 11. But both of them would also defer willingly to Abraham and declare that he is the father of of the faith. The Apostle Paul says the exact same thing in the book of Romans uh, Paul, speaking of Abraham, he says, He is the father of us all. The more contemporary pastor, theologian James Boyce said, No one can understand the Old Testament without understanding Abraham. For in many ways, the history of redemption begins with God's call to him. And here in the passage that we have before us this morning is God's call to Abraham. And it's packed as these theologians and Uh, Other saints that have gone before us have indicated of the significance, even in these these few verses. But what I want us to see this morning is it's not just a, a grand call that we understand the history of redemption, but there is personal benefit for every one of us as well when we consider it. Because one of the things we need to recognize is Paul would write later on that if we are in Christ Jesus, in other words, if you have faith, you've trusted Jesus, and knowing that he is the hope and salvation, God's provision for us, you are an heir of Abraham you are the beneficiaries of the blessings promised to him and you are also the ones who bear uh, all of the promises uh, that go along with that and so therefore it's very personal for every one of us these words, because these promises that were given to Abraham, uh, a few chapters later it would be uh, cut into a covenant, it would be ratified as a covenant that God has made, this is kind of the, the prelude to it, these are the covenant promises, the foundations of that covenant that were not only for Abraham and for his immediate biological children or even his genetic descendants, but all who belong to him. And for a personal benefit as we look at these passages I believe that we see here that the call of Abraham gives us hope and it gives us purpose for our lives. Now as we look at this passage in the call of Abraham, the first thing we need to see is that it gives us hope, at least it certainly gives me hope. To understand how it gives us hope, it's probably helpful for us to understand a little bit more of Abraham's background from which he was called. Abraham was from a a very wealthy, tight-knit pagan family. Apparently the object of their worship was the moon or or the the moon god. They lived in an affluent community, affluent town, uh, Ur, which was known for, among other things, being the place where bathtubs and hot tubs were invented. And so it was the hot tub city. And so it was wealthy people would come get in the hot tub. so it was a vacation spot. And because of the wealth that was around there, this was a, a, he was from a, a, a prominent family, a wealthy family, good prospects for the future, good business, take over the family business. And in a town that would probably we would liken to you know Palm Beach or, or Hilton Head. And God broke in and calls him away from all of that, from, you know, a future of a good job, taking over the family, uh, family business and the family that he had known, uh, living in a, in a place that people would find uh, of, of uh, uh, attractive and appealing to, to live in, uh, a place where you could get a bath, at least other people had bathed, which, is that, you know, that would certainly be a plus, living in the desert in the Middle East. And says, and an absolutely astounding call. Here, let me take you away from all this. Leave everything and go to the place where I'm going to send you. And, and while it's not recorded this way, the essence of the conversation kind of goes like this: Abraham says, "Where are you sending me? I'll let you know when you get there." That was the only direction that he was instruction that he was was given. Now, think about what an unreasonable, what an amazing calling that is. Leave everything upon which you base your comfort, your security, your identity, not uh, mention your relationships, your friends, uh, your heritage. Leave all of that and go to some place you don't even know where you're going. And the only thing that you have to rest in is me, my grace. You will belong to me. That is... An amazing, an amazing call. It's one, though, that we need to recognize because that call is not unique for Abram alone. It is the call to everyone who would follow Jesus, who would belong to God, is that we are to give up those things uh, and rec- that are, are, are our security, are our identity, that we consider them as nothing compared to the greatness of knowing God. And the exchange is this. You would know God, you would be God's people, and you rest in God, that God would provide for you, that you trust. That's that's what it means to follow Jesus, to be a follower and belong to God. And, and it's an incredibly difficult thing for people to do, and it's understandable, because this is an amazing call. And even when you consider the benefits, even when we've experienced the benefits, We can see in our own lives and the lives of the people who are around us how difficult it is for us to heed that call, to follow that call, to to live in that call. Because we like our security. We like our comfort. We like the things that other people use as markers to identify us. And no matter what the blessings that we see God working in our lives, we are all prone to go back. Is this? I often ask, particularly in my own daily struggles, at times where I'm not at my best. If you've ever seen the the movie Shawshank Redemption, there is a scene there where the, the prison librarian is approaching his release date. He'd been in prison for, for 50 years and he is soon to be released. And then Timothy Robbins, I don't remember the name of the character he plays. He's he finds the librarian dead. He hung himself in his cell, and he's shocked and he is wondering. And he speaks out loud to another one of the inmates played by Morgan Freeman, and he says, "I don't, I don't get it. He's been in prison for 50 years. He's about to get out." And Morgan Freeman says, "That's just it." He's been in prison for 50 years it's his prison see this is what he knows this is what he's comfortable with it doesn't matter how much better freedom would be it's frightening and so he would be he was he would rather die than experience that we see that lived out the people of Israel. Been in bondage for 400 years after God had raised the people, the descendants of Abraham. They've been in bondage for 400 years. God delivers them through a series of miracles. And as they are delivered and are on the way to the place that God also was saying, Go to the land I will give you, they were a bunch of whining, sniveling people. Every time they were discomforted. And they're cry was always, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back into bondage. They were more willing to be in bondage than to experience and to live by trusting God. Now, as ridiculous as that is, that's part of the line that gives me hope because I realize that's my mindset as well. Give me comfort. Give me security. Lord, bless me, but bless me with security. Bless me with comfort, things that I can touch and taste. Don't make me rest in you. And I said that, I look at this passage in the call of Abram and it gives me hope. The reason for it is that Abram is no different than you and me. And God has called him and it wasn't on the basis of anything he had done. It wasn't, we have no indication he was a man that was seeking after God. He was not a worshiper, not from a family of worshiping the living and true God. He was from a pagan culture, pagan background. He was a man who was deeply flawed, which you don't see in this passage, but if you read the passages uh, and the chapters after, you see a man who's not just flawed, but in many ways just warped. The invitation of God is to a unworthy, not even seeking individual. Trust me. Follow me. Know you like all of these things. You can know me. And you'll know that I know you. And I will not only take care of you and provide for you, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. That is encouraging to me. It gives me hope because I'm reminded, despite all of my failings, all of my flaws, all of my shortcomings me. It's about God's grace that's extended to me, to you, as it was to Abraham. We, day to day, moment by moment, have the opportunity to trust in God or to whine about the opportunity to go back into our own Egypt, to our own prison. I have hope Because I realize this comes from God and that it's not based on me and that I can't screw it up because of my flaws. It drives me back to trust in God and to rest in Him. Now, it's not just about belonging to God. Well, that's the foundation of our hope. I look at this passage and in this, I see that God's promises to Abraham gives us purpose for our lives. You see them particularly in verses two and three. I'm going to read those again and here's what the Lord says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. and I will bless those who bless you and him who dis- uh, dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here we see, and through these amazing words, the, kind of the, the prelude to the covenant, the foundation of the covenant that was to be uh, cut, and also the first expression of the Great Commission. We tend to think of that as something that happened after Jesus has come, and that he now, having demonstrated who he was, then he decides now's the time to send people out, And that actually happened, but he was rooted in the promise of this covenant as well. Because the purpose that we see here for Abram and for all that would come after him, which includes the church of Jesus Christ today, is to be blessed. And to be a blessing to other people. One theologian says that this passage contains the the gospel in a nutshell. And as soon as I read that, I thought, well, it must be a peanut shell. Because there's two compartments here. Because if if you look at this passage, there's seven promises. Don't look right now. I'll take my word for it. There's seven passages. You can look in a moment. We won't be looking at the seven. But the seven promises are really fall into one of two categories, one of two compartments, and yet they are connected, they are related, they are one. The first category is this, I will be your God, you'll be my people, I will bless you. The second category is, I'm going to bless other people through you, in fact, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And one Bible scholar that I uh, had the opportunity to learn from some time back uh, said that, that this is what he calls the the top line and the bottom line of the covenant. Now, if you were to take take out a quarter or a nickel or any other kind, well, pretty much anything you got, you're going to see that there's a top side, there's a bottom side. Everything you have has got a top and a bottom, and you can't separate one from the other. And the same is true for the covenant that God makes with his people. There is a top line, there is a bottom line of the covenant. The top line is the promise of being God's people and the blessings that go with that And the bottom line is what God plans to do with his people and through his people for the benefit of the other. Now, Israel was going to be raised up. The people that were Abraham's descendants, the the thing that God was doing was he was gathering a people for himself. And he would pour himself into this people. And he says later on, I didn't pick you because you were the greatest people. And I didn't choose Israel because, you know, you're pretty insignificant as a people. And I didn't pick you because you were the most special. I picked you because I chose to pick you, and in you I'm going to demonstrate my glory and my grace. And he gathers this people together, and he provides for them, protects them, makes them distinct from the other nations. But as he blesses them, the purpose for it was so that all the peoples of the earth, all the other nations that were around them, would see how this nation was cared for by their God, the one true God, the God of gods, Lord of lords. And then they would say they got a better deal than I get with with my God. And through envy and through jealousy and through desire and through hunger, they would be drawn to this people and through this people be able to hear of the hope that they could have to know God, to trust God, to be loved by God. And this is God's plan of redemption then And this is God's plan of redemption today. It is the covenant that he has entered into with his people that has a top line and a bottom line. But those two lines are inseparable. What we need to recognize, however, we we live in a culture that I, I see where the church is getting polarized on one line or the other. It's it's nothing new. It's probably always been the case. It's because our own natural instincts probably lean us one way or the other, but we're dividing what God has created to be one. So on the one side, we see the church being filled with people looking at our culture, looking at the needs of the world, looking at the, frankly, the impotence of the church in our culture and asking the question, what is the essence of Christianity? Those who... I'll call them activists, are saying, well, the essence of Christianity is to love your neighbor and engage socially. On the other side, you have people who I'll call pietists who say, no, 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 the essence of Christianity is to love God and engage in evangelism, declaring his praises among the peoples of the nations, his worship. And while both sides are expressing truth because each of them are expressing one or the other line of the covenant, top line, bottom line. The call of Abram, the covenant that God made with Abram, is not one or the other. It is both at all times. Jesus himself picked up on this theme when he was asked by uh, somebody what's the greatest, what's the most important law? What's the the greatest law? He said, the Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. A very top line kind of thing. And then he said, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He wasn't throwing that in for a bonus. He wasn't trying to prove he could answer and get extra credit. But the covenant that was the forerunner of the Great Commission, which is the two tracks by which we... Frame the purpose for our lives involves both at all times, that we are a people that know that we belong to God, and we experience the joy and the benefits of being God's people, and at the same time as God sovereignly sends us to disparate places throughout the world or in our own communities, that we experience different things but for the same purpose, that wherever it is that we are planted with the blessings that God has given us, we then become a blessing to the people that we encounter. And I love the word blessing because it is very different than what we see in the Great Commission in terms of evangelism. Because part of the whole issue is should we engage in social issues or should we withdraw from social issues afraid that people get the wrong idea of the gospel and only deal with evangelism? And the scripture doesn't deal with that in that way. We engage everyone we have opportunity, all the nations of the earth, which also is the impetus for global mission. We have to consider that. How are we going to bless people that are not direct neighbors? And then how are we going to bless the people who are around us? But the word blessing just means that the people that you encounter and the people that you plan to encounter are all better off because they have met you. Now, if that's the case, you don't think they're going to ask at some point, what's the reason for the hope? Why are you the way you are? What makes you tick? And you have the opportunity to then declare to them the truth that you are, I am, the church is blessed by God in order to be a blessing And the ultimate blessing that God has given, the ultimate provision that God has made in fulfillment of this passage is the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to back up before we go to the practical applications of this. See, the plan that God had was to call somebody to himself. And through them, he was going to bless all the nations of the earth. He was going to protect this people, and they were ultimately going to bless. But it was in the line of Abraham through whom Jesus was born. So he's the ultimate fulfillment of that. But the practical implications of it is the people were living with God and for God out among their neighbors. They had reason to point to the hope. We have reason to point to the hope that has come for us already. It's engaging in practical things. It's loving your neighbor without sacrificing loving God first. They can't be separated. They shouldn't be separated. Both of them go together. A tendency, however, is to say, I like one or the other. The people that are top line, you know, say, Lord, I love you, and I know that you've blessed me in many ways, and if anything spills over, that's okay. But the people in the bottom line, recognizing the foolishness of that, have a mindset that simply says, look, I love them. And so, God, I know you love them, so I know you're just giving me things so that I can give to them, and you're nothing more than a vessel. And either one of them violates the law of Jesus has said. One robs you of feeling the joy of belonging to God because you're nothing more than a tool with that mindset. The other separation means that you're just puffed up seeing the top line and the bottom line of the covenant as inseparable and necessary. And one of the things I neglected to point out earlier is this, is the Hebrew word for be a blessing that we have in here is not well translated in, in our English. As we look, you will be a blessing, we tend to think of you will be it's kind of a passive thing. Whereas the weight of the Hebrew says be a blessing. It is more of a directive that we are instructed to be. It's intentional. But we don't need to fear losing because it's God who is resourcing us. It's God who loves us. And it's not because he loves us because we go. He loves us because he loves us. And he loves us as we go. And when we engage our neighbors, as we engage the nations, as we are faithful, being a blessing in practical and in ultimate ways, practical, just meeting the needs, ultimate, sharing the reason for our hope, which is Jesus Christ, we find that we experience more and more the joy that is ours in Christ regardless of the hardship, difficulties and the circumstances that we find. This is an incredible passage. It is foundational in many, many ways. It is also direct. My prayer for us as a church, as a people, is individually and corporately, is that we would be a people who loves God with all that we have and loves our neighbors in very practical ways. That not only is God, are we experiencing the joy of God, but those who live around us, those that we encounter, would consider us a blessing as well. God has made a promise. It's a promise that he has kept. In Jesus, it's a promise that He is keeping and the blessings that you and I have. The question is whether you and I will keep the promise. Father, we pray that you would speak to us and give us the hope that is in Christ and give us the purpose that we so desperately need. May we recognize how you have blessed us, not merely utilitarian so that you can bless others, but you bless us to be a blessing. May we experience the joy of that. May we recognize your hand at work in our midst. May all the people around us and all the peoples of the nation. Know the God we serve. And know of your great love in Christ. Pray us in His holy name.